0: Everybody, welcome to This Good Word, episode 22. Today we're talking about race. On Monday, we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr.'s life, his beautiful, courageous, prophetic life. He was overcome by a vision that his kids would grow up in a world where they would be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now, I'm a white male. I'm living in a world where racial tension is swirling, looking for a place to land, and I'm aware, even as I mention this, even as you read the word race on the title of the episode for this week, that for many, white guilt is so pervasive that it's hard to even talk about this without shame blanketing everything. That's part of the tension. But we have to learn how to talk about it. Everybody, we have to learn how to lean into the tension so that we can move toward healing and towards a better world, one that Dr. King would smile about. So today I'm going to get some help from my friend D, and we're going to dive into it, people. And what I want to say here uh, from the top, even as maybe the blood pressure has raised a little bit, the pulse has raised a little bit, there's nothing... To fear. We need to learn how to talk about it. We need to learn how to recognize reality. We need to learn how to lean into the humanity of the tension of it. And then we need to learn how to move towards healing and towards growth and towards change and towards each other. And we can do this. There is nothing to fear. All right before I get into it, just a couple of fun things to talk about. Uh, I was on the Incomparable Ann Voskamp's blog this week. Ann Voskamp, she wrote a book called A Thousand Gifts, and it sold, I don't know, a few million copies because it is uh, her own words about how to find the beauty and the humanity and the holiness in the ordinary. And I'm going to put a link uh, to that book on my show notes. I'm also going to put a link to my guest post on her site. Uh, it was really fun to be there. She's gracious. She's uh, just an amazing woman that's doing a lot of good in the world. So I'll put that on my show notes. My show notes are steveweens.com blog blog, uh, steveweens, W-I-E-N-S. I'm going to also put a link to an interview I did with Debbie Chavez. She's, uh, uh, she does a radio show, and it's primarily for women. Uh, And but Debbie, she was gracious. She was awesome. We had about a 45 minute conversation about beginnings, the book that I just put out, and uh, it was really fun. And she asked me about every day that I write about day one through seven. And it was really, really fun. So I'll put the link to that. And people in Illinois, uh, I know that a lot of you listen out there uh, to this good word. I'm going to be in Peoria this weekend. I'll be preaching at Imago Day Church in Peoria. Uh, you can find uh, the sh- the service times and stuff. I'm going to put their link to their website in my show notes, so check that out if you're near Peoria. I would love to meet you, and uh, we can hang out together at Imago Day. And then I, w- I want to tell you about something I'm actually very excited about. Uh, we Nav Press and Tyndale and I have put together a resource for pastors. We've put together an eight-week preaching series based on my book, Beginnings. Uh, I'm giving you free videos, free sermon notes, uh, and lots of other juicy content for you to preach an eight-week series, starting on Easter Sunday this year with Day 8, which I talk all about resurrection. Uh, it, It is so fun for me to think about a group of pastors, men and women, standing shoulder to shoulder, preaching this uh, series together. There's a closed Facebook page for any of you who are going to do it, so we can interact with each other. I'll be on there interacting with you, answering questions and all that stuff. So I'm going to put the link to where you can get all of that good stuff on my show notes, so please check that out. It's going to be very fun. And then lastly, a bunch of you are letting me know that you're starting book clubs based on beginnings. I love this. It's really, uh, I think, an easy thing to do because I've included questions and spiritual practices after every single chapter in my book. So if you want to do a book club, let me know. Contact me on Facebook or Twitter or wherever it is that you would like to do that. And um, I'll make a video for you to send out to your peeps, Uh, I'll make it personal you about kind of what you, what you want to do with the group and when you want to start, and I would love to do that for you. So just let me know how I can help, and boom, we will do that. All right, let's get into it. Uh, episode 22, Race. So about maybe two months ago, I was driving down to meet someone in North Minneapolis at this great restaurant, Victory 44, and um, I was just kind of lost. I think I was listening to music or something. But I unintentionally cut someone off when I was driving, and I, I changed lanes. I went from the left lane to the right lane, and I didn't look, and I cut someone off. And man, the, per- the people behind me were mad. <laughs> they, were, they were not happy, and they shouldn't have been. I mean, it's dangerous to cut someone off. I should have been paying more attention. I felt bad. But then uh, they kind of came around me. They passed me, and, man, they showed me why that, that they were mad. They slowed down. Uh, they shook their fists. They yelled some things, and I, I was, I, it, was, it was a little scary. And they were people of color. Uh, there were some black teenagers in that car, and I immediately felt really scared. Uh, I drove to the restaurant. I parked. And then I thought, "Uh-oh, what if they recognize my car? What if they vandalize it?" I mean, I'm just—I'm not—I am ashamed of every single thing that I'm saying right now. I realize uh, the prejudice involved in it. I realize, uh, but but I want to say it in part because I think this is part of the tension. We don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to move past it. We don't know how to deal with it. And so I had to really do some reflecting on where it, where it is that I sit uh, in the swirling tension of race. So here's what I came to. Number one, I don't know what it's like to be black in America right now. I'm white, uh, and I have grown up white in a white family. Of, I grew up in Southern California. Some of my buddies that I grew up with and played basketball with were people of color. But I live in Minnesota now and it's um Minnesota's pretty segregated to be quite honest. Uh and I don't know what it's like to be black and to be in America. And I just need to say that. I don't I don't know what it's like. The secondly thing I came to is I need to learn and grow in this issue. I'm 45 years old. Uh there's a way in which I feel like, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm very progressive on uh, this issue." I um But, you know, the truth is, I'm not. The truth is, I have a lot to learn. And um, I think more of us, to be quite honest, need to push past the shame and push past the guilt and just ask the question, what do we need to learn and how do we need to grow when it comes to understanding some of the tension of the race relations in America? I came to the fact that I want to recognize my own prejudice and repent of that. Um, I wanted to get real about that. I wanted to get honest about where it is that some of my blinders are so that I can turn around. That's what repenting means. Just turn around, uh, make a new start. And then fourthly, I want to be a part of change. I actually want to be a part of change in our country. I want us to move from where we are to, where, to a more healthy, more integrated place. Where we are is not good. Where we are right now cannot, it, it, it must change. It must change. Now, I'm not talking about a bunch of white you know, people descending upon primarily black communities and be, saying, we are the people of change. No, 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 no. What I am talking about is People like me, people like you, learning, growing, making some relational inroads where we can, and being a part of the solution, hand in hand, people of color, uh, people who are white, doing it together. Got to be that way. So I have this friend, Dee McIntosh. She's 29 years old. She is a young black preacher. Uh, and she, she and I have become friends over the last maybe two years. Dee and I have had a few coffees together. We just had lunch together a couple weeks ago, and I recently invited her to preach at my church, Genesis Covenant Church, partly because, man, she is an amazing preacher, but partly because I needed to learn, and I wanted our people to learn what it's like to be black and to live in America, and what it's like to hold the tension of believing that God has a better picture of what reconciliation looks like than what we are experiencing right now. So Dee came in to preach. I'm going to play Dee's message in its entirety. It's about 23 minutes long. It is gracious. It is powerful. At times, it's uncomfortable, but it's really good. I'm going to play it right here about in a minute, and then I'm going to uh, come on afterwards with some closing remarks, some closing thoughts, some next steps, and I hope as you listen, uh, you can learn to just name, if you're feeling uncomfortable, just name that. Don't judge that. It's okay. There was times where I was uncomfortable. Our community was uncomfortable at times as they heard these message. But I think it's so important for us to provide environments where we can sit in the tension where we can talk together where we can learn and grow together uh so I'm making friends um I'm making a friend um uh in d and she's teaching me uh, what it's like to be black in America and what I can do um as a person who cares about change. I'm also reading a book called Between the World and Me. By Tanisi Coates, and it is a father's letter to his son, uh, and it is brilliant. It's beautifully written, and it 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 is just one of the most helpful resources that I have gotten my hands on, as it relates to understanding and moving toward healing and wholeness, um, on on what it means to be Black in America right now. So check that out. I'm going to put a link to it on my show notes. So without further ado, uh, I'm going to dive into Dee's message, and I just need to say it, man, even, even talking about this right now, sitting in my dark office on an early Thursday morning, I'm feeling the tension. You know, I'm, 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 I'm feeling the tension just talking about it. So if you're feeling the tension, hey, you know what? If you need to press pause, take a little break, come back, get some tea, do that. But I encourage you to press on, my brothers and sisters, press on, because we can move into a world that is better than it is right now in this regard. So, without further ado, check it out, These Message. It's, it was preached at Genesis Covenant Church in December of 2015. And then I'll come back on at the end and give some closing remarks. Uh,
1: the reading this morning is from Nehemiah 1, verses 1 through 7 from the New Revised Standard Version. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah In the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, one of my brothers, Hanani, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them about the Jews that survived, those who had escaped the captivity, and about Jerusalem. They replied, The survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both I and my family have sinned. We have offended you deeply, failing to keep the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances that you commanded your servant Moses. The word of the Lord.
2: Genesis. Oh, we can do this better. Good morning, Genesis. Good morning.
3: Praise the Lord, Saints. Oh, we got to practice. Wait, before I can even begin, we need to begin with practice. Okay. So when I say praise the Lord, Saints, you guys say praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, Saints. Praise the Lord. Amen. It is a honor to be here this morning. I am grateful that Steve asked me to come. Um, Like he said, I am the Associate Missions Pastor at Christ Presbyterian in Edina, but more importantly, I am a wife, I am a mother of two very active young boys, six and four, Um, and I am a Northside resident, Northside, we're outside. I am proud of my community and where I live. This morning, um, I want to preach a sermon entitled, How then Shall We Respond? How then shall we respond? I have been on the ground in North Minneapolis since November 15th uh, when Jamar Clark was shot in the head uh, and died on the site. I have been down there as a clergy member, as a liaison, uh, working with uh, groups like Black Lives Matter and the NAACP, Uh, And I have spent day after day after day in the community that I live and love, and then every weekday have to drive out to the suburbs of Edina and do my work. It has been a very hard and difficult three weeks for me, and that, friends, is an understatement. So as I was reflecting on what is happening, not just in our city, but around the world, I began to fast and pray and ask God, Lord, how do you want me to respond? What is it that you have called me to do? And as I was fasting and praying, and one day actually at CPC, I felt the Lord draw me to Nehemiah chapter 1. Here we have an example. I think, a three-point process in which Nehemiah responds to the reports of what is going on
2: in Jerusalem. How then shall we respond? So before we
3: jump into the context, into the text of Nehemiah, what I would like to do is give us a little textual background into why it is that Hanani, Nehemiah's brother, is living in Jerusalem and is coming into what I like to call the suburbs of Susa to report on what is happening in the inner city of Jerusalem. Remember with me, if you will, that God had promised the Israelites that they would enter into the promised land. After the Israelites occupied the land, they did something that was unusual. They asked God for a king. God was not pleased with the request, but he honored it nevertheless. And then we have the 12 tribes of Israel under the United Kingdom of Saul, David, and Solomon. But if you remember with me, the reign of Solomon was not the greatest. There was great infidelity, adultery, wickedness, and idolatry in the land. And so the prophets came to Solomon and said, God has spoken forth and declared that if you do not turn from your wicked ways, the kingdom of Israel will be divided into two kingdoms. The people refused to turn from their ways. And then we have the 10 tribes of Israel forming one kingdom and the two tribes under which, under which they lived, the title Judah. And you would think after the kingdom, the United Kingdom of Israel, having been broken up and split into two, you would think that the people would turn from their ways, and they continued to be idolatrous. They continued to live uh, in wicked ways. And so God sent the prophets again, one after another after another, saying, if you do not turn from your wicked ways, you will be forced into exile. The very promise that he gave Moses, prior to the people even entering into the land, that if you turn from the ways of God, God will scatter you. The people did not turn, and here comes the Babylonians and Assyrians. They ransack Jerusalem. They lay waste to the land and to its people, and they cart out all of the able-bodied men and women And young boys, and they take them into captivity. Now, Jerusalem then looks like the inner city, the hood, the ghetto of the ancient Near Eastern world, because it is a place that has only, whose inhabitants are orphans and widows. It is a place that does not have sufficient means and resources to accommodate the needs of the people who live in the land. It is the inner city. <laughs> I love that. And so now in the time of Nehemiah, we have, prior to this text in Nehemiah, the first wave under Zerubbabel in which the Israelites are returning back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. But the people remain displaced and dispossessed. They remain disenfranchised. And then we have in Ezra the second wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. And yet the problems and the violence and the disenfranchisement and the oppression that exists in the city remains the same. So we have here in Nehemiah Hanani and his friends coming all the way from the inner city of Jerusalem into the suburbs of Susa to visit Nehemiah, who was living in the house of the king. Friends, I am here this morning as Hanani. I am coming from the inner city of North Minneapolis to give you an update on what is happening in my city. And I have traveled all the way from the inner city into the suburban context within which you live. How then shall we respond? So Hanani comes and he visits his brother and Nehemiah asks a really dumb question. Nehemiah says, how's everything going in the city? I don't really think that he was expecting the answer that he would get. It's like when people ask you, how are you doing? But they don't really want to know. Has anybody ever experienced that? There's nothing worse than having, having when you're having a terrible day and someone asks how you're doing and you feel like you're just going to verbally vomit all over them, but you know they're not ready, that they didn't really mean it when they asked you how you're doing. (laughs) This is what's happening here in this text. Nehemiah is living under the luxury and privilege and power of what it means to be the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes, the ruler of the Persian Empire in Susa, the capital, and he has the audacity to ask his brother and those who have come from Jerusalem, how are things? In Jerusalem. And Hanani responds, the survivors there in the province who have escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. This morning I want us to look at the response of Nehemiah. Because here, in the three-point process of Nehemiah's response, I think we can glean how we, maybe not we because this does not categorize me, how you as white American Christians can respond to the atrocities of people who do not look like you, talk like you, or come from your same socioeconomic background and or context. Amen. So let's look at Nehemiah's response. Hanani reports that the wall is broken down and the gates are on fire, and Nehemiah says in verse 4, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the Lord. Point one, Nehemiah lamented. Before I can even go into Nehemiah's lament, let me just give you a few notes, side notes, that we can put in the margins that I feel like it is necessary to say. Notice that Nehemiah did not say, I hear what you're saying, but I need to wait for the unbiased reporting of news media to tell me precisely what is happening in the context, even though the reporters of the context do not understand the historical nature of what actually happens in everyday life for people of lower socioeconomic status. But I'm going to wait, Hanani. I know that you live there. I know that you understand what people are seeing and feeling. I know that you have experienced the oppression yourself, but I'm sorry, I have to wait on all the facts from unbiased news stations such as Fox News. That is not Nehemiah's response. He doesn't ask for more facts. He doesn't ask for more people to come and report to him what is going on. Nehemiah falls down on his knees and he begins to mourn and lament. He is like the women at the wailing wall. He bemoans what is happening in the inner city of Jerusalem. We are not a nation that is good at lamenting. And I am concerned for an American church that does not grasp the importance of lamenting. Because if we don't learn how to lament, we can't ever actually make changes in the world. We have to be a people that understands what lamenting is. Lamenting is not about feeling bad. It is not simply feeling sad. Lamenting is not an expression of sorrow in order to assuage feelings of guilt and the burden of responsibility. Lamenting is like being stuck in the dark night of the soul, and there is nothing within Christianese language that can get you out of it. I'm concerned with the way that we celebrate Advent in this country. People waited hundreds, if not thousands of years for the coming of a savior, not just the Israelites, but the entire creation was waiting on a savior, and we spend four weeks out of the year, two of which may be just one, where we actually exist in the darkness of what it means to live in the world, and then we quickly move into the joy of the coming of our savior we are a people that do not understand what it means to lament and here nehemiah responds to the words of hanani and he fasts and he prays and he cries and he we- weeps for days before god nowhere in this text do you see anything about the joy of the lord nowhere in this text do you see anything about happy 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 jesus jesus just wants us to be happy yay it's not here because Nehemiah understands what it means to lament. Lamenting always leads us into repenting. And that is point two of what Nehemiah does in his response. We see this lamenting into repenting in Jeremiah, lamentations in Job. Job lived in probably the worst dark night of the soul that is in the text, in the Old Testament, and he is repenting before the Lord. Now, if I haven't already made you uncomfortable, this part about repentance might make you a little, might make you a little iffy. I'm just going to throw that out there now. I have learned that it's just good just to prepare people. We hate repenting. I mean, I'm going to talk for myself. I don't really like to repent because to repent means that I actually have to own up to the fact that I am a sinful human being. It's difficult for me to repent for my own sins Because what I'd like to think is, well, I'm better than other people. I haven't killed anybody, never committed adultery. Like, do I really have to repent for that one white lie that I told and the reality is I only really told it because it it just seemed better in that situation? Do I really have to repent for Minnesota niceness? (gasps) For passive aggressiveness? It's not actually in the Bible that I have to repent for those things. Nehemiah repents, and his repentance covers three categories. The first that I, wanna, the first that I want to look into is the category of ancestors slash original sin. This is where we really get uncomfortable. Nehemiah repents, and he says, both I and my family have sinned. If you look at other translations of this, Nehemiah says, Both I and my father's fathers, and my father's fathers before them have sinned. He is repenting on behalf of his fathers, his father's fathers, and all of those who have gone before him who may have directly or indirectly been the cause of Israel, Israel being moved into exile. Today, that would be, Well, I wasn't there when slavery happened. So what am I repenting for? Nehemiah doesn't care that he wasn't even born when the Israelites went into exile. He had always been born in exile. He had only ever known what it was to live in the capital of Susa, and yet he repents on behalf of all of his ancestors who might have been directly or indirectly connected to the sinfulness of the Israelites that landed the Israelites in exile and cause the city of Jerusalem to be broken. The second category that Nehemiah repents for is he repents for the ways in which he has become a beneficiary of systems of oppression. This is where things get iffy. He repents on behalf of himself. I was not there in 1861 when European descent settlers decided to form a group known as the Knights of the Forest, whose sole purpose was the annihilation and extermination of all Native American peoples in the state of Minnesota, and yet I am a beneficiary of all of the crimes and exploitations done to Native American people simply because I own a home in North Minneapolis. My house.
2: Sits on land that was stolen. The third category that
3: Nehemiah repents for. He repents for the entire people of Israel. If I was Nehemiah, I would say. Mm. I mean, they claim to be Israelites, but they might not really be. (laughs) Nehemiah essentially says, I am not a part of the group that co-signs with Donald Trump in this ridiculous ban, proposed ban, against Muslims in this nation, and yet I repent on behalf of them precisely because they claim to be Christian and they are a part of my Christian family. No one's talking to me. This is getting rough, isn't it? (laughs) Nehemiah, (laughs) Nehemiah says... I was not there in Nazi Germany when Christians remained silent to the atrocities that were done to Jews, and yet I repent on behalf of them because they proclaimed to be Christians. I was not there in 1095 when the first wave of crusades was unleashed in the Middle East, and yet I repent on behalf of all of
2: those who did it in the name of Jesus Christ. I repent. It is only after
3: lamenting and repenting that we can then move into action. We get this wrong all the time. We maybe lament, we definitely don't repent, and then we just try to just take over and rush into action. There's a process that must take place. And the process is as much for ourselves than it is for the people that we seek to help because it grounds us in the message of Jesus Christ, it grounds us in the gospel, and it humbles us. It teaches us that we do not know everything, we are not the saviors of the world, and that if it had not been for the blood of the lamb, where would we be? The action is this. Nehemiah prays in verse 11, Lord, be attentive to the prayer of your servant and give your servant success today and grant me mercy in the sight of this, this man, this man being King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah recognizes the context within which he lives. He recognizes that he is in a, a seat of privilege that those in the inner city do not have. He recognizes that he has the capacity to influence people who look just like him, come from the same context of him, and have resources. Let me break down what resources are. Financial, talent, gifts, abilities, and social capital, i.e. the friendships that you have. And he takes all of those resources that he has into the inner city of Jerusalem, and he
2: says, how might I work with you? There are already assets in the inner city. There are already people there
3: that are gifted to do the work. Reconciliation looks like two different types of people coming together and doing the work together,
2: not one dictating how the work should be done. Nehemiah comes alongside those
3: in the city. He laments, he repents, and then he is moved into action. I don't have much more to say, but I do want to say this. We we are very good at seeing the splinter in other people's eyes, but we often ignore the log that is in our own. It is confounding to me how good we are at addressing the needs of people thousands of miles away in different countries, but for some reason we can't seem to galvanize over the issues in our own backyard. I'm confused. We rush to do work in Africa, but we have no meaningful relationships with African-Americans in our own country. I'm confused. We rush to engage in human trafficking in Asia, in India, and yet Minnesota is home to one of the largest centers of human
2: trafficking in this nation, and we say nothing. We have all these comments to say about Donald Trump and his proclamation
3: around Muslims, and yet we don't even have real relationships with Muslims in our own context. We ignore the fact of the largest, one of the largest immigrant groups in this state is Somali. Friends, I am here as Hanani this morning, coming to tell you that the people in the inner city are hurting. They are in pain and they are in terror. I am here to tell you that there are Muslims in North Minneapolis who are living in fear of what it is that Christians are going to do to them now that this banning has come. I'm here to tell you that racism
2: still exists individually and systemically. And I am also here to tell you that there are babies being trafficked every single day in this state. How then will you respond?
0: Okay, everybody, man, that was beautiful and powerful. And gracious, and so uncomfortable, and so good. My closing thoughts as you listen to Dee's message, as you heard the call for repentance from Nehemiah, as you heard him weeping about the way things are, as you heard and felt the tension of this person seeing how things are in Jerusalem and reporting back that the city is in ruins. The people are in mourning. It's bad news. And then to see Nehemiah's response to, first of all, repent. Not just of the things that he has done, but the things that his people have done across generations, that he is in some ways responsible for repenting. Uh, And then as we think about how... um, we are in, in a similar situation hearing the powerful voice of a young woman who lives in North Minneapolis and is telling us how it is. This is how it is. Will we listen? Will we dismiss her? Will we let white guilt overcome us and so we will just go back to what's comfortable? Or will we press into the tension admit what we don't know, admit that we need to learn and grow, to recognize our own prejudice and repent of that, and be a part of change. So here are some questions for you to deal with. I think they're helpful. Um, So the first question is, where's the fear for you? Where's the fear for you? I think it's helpful to locate the fear so that the fear doesn't drive the bus. Fear can be there. Fear will be there. But we need to put it in the back seat, as our dear friend Elizabeth Gilbert says. Uh, But where's the fear for you? Is it that you're going to be shamed and blamed and guilted? And Where's the fear when you see images on TV, when you read stories? Where's the fear? Try to name it. Try to get there so that it doesn't drive. Because when it's driving, it's never going to lead toward reconciliation, hope, and change. And then what would you like to learn? And how would you like to learn it? You need to move toward a person of color to learn and have some meetings with them, have some coffee with them and say, if you're white, I am white and I have a lot to learn about what it's like to be black in America. Please uh, tell me. Or do you need to pick up uh, Between the World and Me, this book that I was telling you about? Of course, there's a million books, but this one is really, really beautiful. Really, really brilliant. So my encouragement to you is if you want to start there, start there. Uh, what is one tangible step you can take? I, you know, I think we, 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 we stop short at fear. We stop short at, oh, man, what a great message. Maybe you felt that. What is one tangible step you can take? Again, reading a book, building a relationship, um, spending some time in prayer, repenting. Whatever it is, I think if you want to be a part of change, which I think most of us do, uh, you got to do something tangible, right? You 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 got to get in the game, friends. Black lives do matter. Uh, let's be a part of healing. Of course, we've you know the hashtag, and it, when things get reduced to 140 character conversations on Twitter, things get truncated. Of course, all lives matter. Of course, all lives matter. But right now, we're in a situation in our country and around the world where black lives are really hurting. They're really, really hurting. And so to lift up a certain people group that are really hurting right now is not only good, it's necessary. Black lives do matter. They do matter. And let's be a part of healing reconciliation, and change. And let's admit what we don't know. Let's admit where we are. Let's admit the fears and prejudices we have. Let's move toward people of color with grace, posture of learning, so that we can move toward a better world that Martin Luther King would smile about. Amen? Okay, everybody. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together. Grace and peace,
2: everybody.